So just to recap briefly, last week we defined the glory of a church in this way. The glory of a church would be the outward, quantifiable, and usually visible manifestation of the essential value and usefulness of that church. And that would be flowing ultimately from the fact that God is there. God is in the midst of that people. That leads us to the question, how would we know if God were with us? God does not have a body. We cannot see God. How would we know if God was in the midst of a people? We answer that by saying we would know because the revealed will of God would be being carried out with eagerness and to the delight of the people. So there would begin in the hearts of the people an eagerness, a desire to do what God has revealed in His Word. Then that would be done. And when it was done, the people would be delighted that they had done it because they had followed the commands of God. When God lends His presence to a people... That's what happens. They want to follow His instructions, and it delights them to do so. Now, the revealed will of God for a church could be divided up into two categories. Keech gives us matter and form. If we take everything the Bible says about a church, what God has said about how a church should look, it should function, we could break it up into two categories. Matter and form. Who makes up that church? Well, only those that God says make up that church. And then their form, how do those people come together? What do they do when they come together? What is the product of their coming together? That all makes up the form. And God in His Word has laid this out for us uh, clearly and I would say very simply. And so when a church consists of those that God has added is joined together in the way that God has commanded, is doing what God has commanded them to do, out of eagerness and to their delight, we can rightly conclude that God is amongst that people. Now notice I did not say they feel warm and fuzzy when they get together or when they leave. Uh, They have emotional cathartic experiences. I didn't say any of that. Not that there are no emotions or affections connected to the work of God, but that's not how we discern really whether God is in the midst of a people. We would even say uh, delight is an affection or an emotion, but that doesn't mean that we're all rolling around on the floor giggling with delight, but we we can be delighted knowing that we have pleased God. It is a, a delight of faith. What is God commanded? Did I do what God commanded? Did I do it because I wanted to please God out of obedience to Him? I did. Then I should be delighted that I've done that. That should bring me joy. When when those things are happening in a church, I think it's safe to conclude God is, is in the midst of that people and is working. Now, as we move forward, just a brief word about how we're going to go about this study. I've mentioned some of this before, but what I'm going to do be very similar to the way that the men conduct our study on Saturday mornings. Um, we're going to read what Keach has said, and I'll make comments as we go. So read a little bit, stop, 
comment on what was just read, read a little bit, stop, comment on what was just read. Um, many times we'll use Keech's uh, scripture references that he gives. Sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll add our own scripture references. Sometimes he will get us in a direction and we may go a little further. There are things that uh, he might say where he just sort of assumes a particular thing. And in our present day, we might not typically assume that. So we might see that as a trail that needs to, to be taken a little further. But we'll use the scripture. We'll, we'll use some of our own uh, scripture references. Um, as we said before, we're going to appeal to other authors. As, as Keach himself does, he'll point to various men and we'll, we'll bring them in to sort of help or clarify some things that he said. But ultimately, Keach is going to lead the way. Others are going to help us as we go along this pathway. And Scripture is going to be the foundation of everything that we're learning. And, and, and I think this is important And in the, as I study this subject and other subjects. I'm learning more and more uh, just how scriptural and biblical these men were. They were not stupid. And they say things that to our modern ears sound crazy. Um, I was pointing out to some guys this week, y'all are going to think I'm crazy and I'm, I'm not going to preach this sermon. I'm just going to throw this out there and let you squirm. We love the Puritans, right? We read the Puritans. The Puritans are great guys. Oh, we just, we love them. My wife's giving me the, the, the don't say it. We say, but really, and I, and I was talking to another brother. I said, but really, deep down, we think they're idiots, if we're honest. On some stuff, we're like, well, he's good there, but he's good because I've decided that he's good. I feel like he's good. But over here, this guy's crazy. The Puritans, they were those guys who didn't believe you should play cards. Right? They're, they're lunatics, right? That's, that's absurd. That's crazy. They had Bible for it. They had Scripture for it. Anyway, so we're going to let Keach guide us into this study. We're going to bring other, along other helps because these men are thoroughly biblical in their thinking. Most of us would say, you know, I, I don't know the Scriptures like I, I wish I did. We begin to read through a book like Isaiah, and we realize, I probably don't know much of the scriptures at all, but I know that guy's crazy because he doesn't play cards. I do know that. See, we, we, what we need to understand is these men had a biblical view of thinking about things that far surpasses our, our comprehension, and I'm learning that for myself, and I'm learning there's, there's a lot that I really don't know. Um, Everybody draw your minds back together now. <laughs> I told you I would stir you up and just leave you. Um, anyway, so we closed last week with, with asking, uh, what is Keech actually doing in this book? Well, he's describing the revealed will of God for the right matter and form of a true church. That's, what, that his, that's his goal. So we want to follow him in that. So having read the opening epistle, which set the stage for us, we'll pick up with Keech's first heading, which does restate some of what we've already covered, but from a little bit of a different angle. First heading, top of page 5, concerning a true and orderly gospel church. Stop. Uh, and again, the men realize that if we go in this process the way that we typically do, this could take forever. But we'll, we'll move faster at times. What can we discern from that title or that first heading concerning a true and orderly gospel church? Well, we can discern from... 
uh, Mr. Keech's uh, perspective, and I think we would all be able to affirm this, that there are true and orderly gospel churches. And that's what his aim is, and that ought to be our aim. But we can also discern from that title, uh, or deduce from that title, that there are also false churches. We can deduce from that title that there are disorderly churches. What we're after is a true and orderly church, but there are false churches, there are disorderly churches. Our confession says this, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. So, so some start out as true churches, and then they degenerate to the point where they're not a church at all. Now, we can't always see it, but from God's perspective, there was a moment where that church went from true church to no church. For us, it it's, it's often looks like a gradual thing, and maybe many times we can't discern it, but there are uh, those instances. There are churches that start out as true churches, and even in their starting, they have some disorderliness about them. They start out, maybe humanly speaking, where they're... they're is no disorder, but then disorderliness may come along as they go. See, there's a spectrum in, in, on which we ought to think about churches. And that's, that's kind of what we see here and from our confession. A, a true church may be, and by may, I don't mean that they are allowed to be. I'm saying it is possible that a true church is disorderly. It's still a true church. It's just... Disorderly, there might be in that true church a mixture of good and bad, of truth and error. At the same time, not every group that calls itself a church is actually a church. Only God can define what a church is. And our goal should always be to have and to maintain a true and orderly gospel church. So that's the title. A true and orderly gospel church. Notice what he says. Before there can be orderly discipline among a Christian assembly, they must be constituted into a church state in an orderly and regular manner according to the institution of Christ in the gospel. Now I just want to point out that from the beginning, Keach is already headed in the direction of discipline. That's, that's his horizon. But he says, before there can be orderly discipline, there's some things we have to lay out. So he's, he's got discipline on his mind. We read last week from his perspective, without a regular and orderly discipline, a, a church will soon lose its beauty and be polluted. So a church might start out glorious, and then that beauty can fade if it's not kept up, if it's not maintained. He said ignorance of the rules of discipline cause no small trouble and disorders in our churches. So Keach, he has his eye fixed on the subject of discipline, which, remember, is much larger than just excommunication, much larger, larger than just Matthew 18. Discipline is a big subject, but he has that in his mind because he knows that it's this discipline which serves to maintain the beauty of Christ's church. So he has discipline in his eye, but he says before that can happen, before there can be discipline in a church, there must be a church. 
you have to have a, a, a properly settled or established functioning church. And that's what he means by they must be constituted into a church state, not a state church, church state. And it's here that we have to begin to define some terms. In our modern, relaxed, and often authority-despising culture, we have all but outright rejected many of the concepts which were seen as absolutely fundamental to the biblical doctrine of the church in previous ages. Uh, we, we have, as an example, we have taken where two or three are gathered uh, in my name, there am I among you, to mean a Bible study as a church. We've just... We just completely introduced things that were utterly foreign to uh, generations before us. And, and why would that be appealing? Well, because those two or three get to get together whenever they want, however they want, do whatever they want. No, no prescriptions, no rules. They just sit back, relax, kick their feet up, drink a cup of coffee, read some scripture, and, oh, here, we're having church. That, that, that sounds great to a lot of people. But... That, that would, again, have been foreign to, to Scripture and history. So let's define some of these, these terms. The first is that phrase, church state, and we have a footnote for it. What does he mean by church state? A duly constituted congregation under the rule of Christ. Visible church of Christ on earth, ordered according to Christ's word. That's, a, that's what he means by church state. They must be constituted into a church state. A duly constituted congregation. What does duly mean? Duly means prop following proper procedure or arrangement. A duly constituted congregation. What does constituted mean? It means established. And what is a congregation? The 1828 Dictionary actually gives this definition for congregation. A group of people met for religious worship and religious instruction. A duly constituted congregation. So Keech is saying that to maintain the glory of a true church, there has to be proper discipline. But before there can be proper discipline, there has to be a church. And by that church or church state, he means a group of people who have established themselves as a particular congregation for the purpose of wor worshiping God and re receiving religious instruction, and who have done so, that is, who have established themselves following a proper procedure and arrangement, a duly constituted congregation, a church state. And the proper procedure or arrangement of their being constituted is what is alluded to by the, those words, an orderly and regular manner according to the institution of Christ in the gospel. That is the word of God and in particular the pattern of the New Testament. So get this. Keach is assuming, and this, take this and say and ask yourself, is this, have I gleaned this in my recent readings through the book of Acts? Is this what I got? Because this is what they got. This is what I got. Keach is assuming that the Word of God does present to us this notion of a proper, properly established or duly constituted church. The Word of God does not present to us this notion of a church as being simply an open invitation Bible study. 
It's not just a get-together of people who share a common interest in God. It's not even a get-together of people who share the same doctrinal convictions. A church is a group of people who have, according to a proper and formal agreement amongst themselves, given themselves to the Lord and to one another, and as a part of that giving to the Lord and to one another, they meet together to worship and to be taught from the Scriptures. Now, what, what does all this imply? Think about it. If this is, if this is what he's saying, he's, he's basically just given us the, the, the cover, the, the box cover to a puzzle. And we open that up, and what all kinds of pieces would there have to be in this box to make that picture? Think about it. These things would require formal, public recognition of doctrinal standards. So there has to be an agreement amongst the people. This is what we believe. But wait a second. We've already got to step two. We've got to define we first. Who's the we? This requires a, a formal public recognition of who is in the group versus who's not in the group. A formal public recognition of what it means to be in the group along with the privileges that come with being in the group and the liabilities that come with being in the group. It requires a formal, public, and voluntary consent of each individual to submit to the agreed-upon standards. So it's not merely, yes, I like those, but I agree to submit myself to those standards. I will come under them along with these other individuals. There has to be agreement on what exactly it means to give themselves to the Lord and to one another. There have to be rules and ways of keeping each member accountable to all of these agreed-upon standards. What's the point of any of this if there's no accountability, if anybody can say they agree to it and then just do as they please after the fact? Well, that doesn't make any sense. There has to be some accountability in that group. We won't get to this tonight, but I would say all of this throws us in the direction of a church covenant. People say, well, you don't say that in the Bible. And, and there was differences of opinion amongst early Baptists about the concept of a church covenant, whether written and agreed to or merely agreed to verbally. But they all understood to establish a church state, there has to be this formal public recognition of all of these things as a group. Now, so you have to have a church if you're going to have proper discipline. Now, he writes under heading number one, to, give, to begin to give a definition of what a church is. So this is number one under heading number one. A church of Christ, according to gospel institution, is a congregation of godly Christians who, being first baptized upon the profession of faith, as a stated assembly, do by mutual agreement and consent give themselves up to the Lord and to one another according to the will of God and do ordinarily meet together in one place for the public service and worship of God 
among whom the word of God and the sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institution. Now, Keach here lists eight traits which characterize a true church. We'll, we'll walk through them. The first one is a church is a congregation of godly Christians. And we saw this a bit last week. We, we do believe in the concept of a regenerate church membership. You're not born biologically into the church, but you are born spiritually through the new birth into the church. Regenerate church membership. And we saw earlier today that, that our confession says that those who make up the church must be those who are not destroying their profession by any errors averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation. So the church is to be made up of godly Christians. Christians who have a, a witness about them, at least to those who know them the best, that they are godly people, regenerate, godly, holy people. Number two, he says, being first baptized upon the profession of faith. So the members of a church, not only those who are regenerate and godly, but they must make a profession of that faith. It's not a secret thing. For all we know, there might be many in this room now who have been born again, and yet they have not yet made a public profession of that faith, uh, especially by means of water baptism. But to be a member of the church, there has to be a public profession of the faith, and they must be baptized. And it's interesting to note his language, being first baptized upon the profession of faith. So Keach would say, and again, this was, was a point of minor difference amongst some of the early particular Baptists, but Keach was one of the ones who said, baptism precedes entrance into church membership. Now, to think of the historical context, you've got many who might be coming out of paedo-baptist backgrounds, and they've come to credo-baptist, believer's baptism, they've come to credo-baptist beliefs and they want to join a particular Baptist church. Well, those who were baptized as infants, the question was, do we just bring them in? I mean, they've been baptized. Well, the other side says, but have they really? Are we going to concede that? And that was a point of dispute. And there were churches who held to open membership. If you, had, if you were baptized as an infant, you could come in and join, and they wouldn't say you need to be baptized again. Uh, the other side says, no, we, are, we believe in believer's baptism by immersion. Therefore, you must be first baptized upon the profession of faith. Um, and, and I think it's easy to, to prove the, that position, being first baptized from Scripture. I think that's the easiest one to hold. Uh, just because there is no infant baptism in Scripture. So that, that quarrel doesn't really come up. Um, but we would agree with that. They, they must be baptized. There must be a profession of faith. Number three, he says, as a stated assembly. The word stated, we use this term sometimes and we don't really explain it. We'll, we'll refer to the stated meetings of the church. The, the word means settled, established, fixed, or regular that's stated, and then an assembly is a coming together. So a church comes together as a regular, fixed, settled congregation, a stated assembly. In Acts 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, When you come together. eleven eighteen, When you come together as a church. 
11.33, when you come together to eat. 34, when you come together. We see this throughout the New Testament. And the idea here behind a stated assembly is that there is a time and a place and a purpose for the meeting that has been agreed upon. It's, it's a settled fact that these gatherings will happen. So it's not as though the assembly is potential and if people show up, then we'll have a church. Or, or we wait to see if people show up and say, all right, well, we're ready to have church now. No. That we would say that is exactly not a church. If, you just, if we just came, we just threw it out on the airwaves, hey, there's going to be a meeting, and then a, a mass of people came, we would say that is exactly not a church. That's how you know it's not a church because it wasn't, it's not a stated, fixed assembly of a particular people who have covenanted together. The idea here is that a church is a group of people who have a fixed meeting time and place so that when the church meets, those people who make up that church have already in the past agreed to be there, barring providential hindrances. When you, when you join the church, a part of what you're saying is, yeah, I'll be there. That's, that's a part of church membership. We, we've heard it said, you've heard this phrase, oftentimes you might hear it of someone after they've died. He, he was at church every time the doors were open. She was at church every time the doors were open. Or, or when I, when I, the way I was raised, we were at church every time the doors were open. And that's used to describe a person that very often almost like they are the, the, the extreme exception. And they were just the type of person that the, the opening of the church doors was like the opening of the doors of an airplane. That they, they just desired to be there so much that when the doors opened, they just got sucked in. And, and in their own hearts, that may have been so. They longed to be there. But really, objectively, historically... For many of those types of people, they were there every time the doors were open. The point was, in their mind, that's not extreme. I, I made the agreement to be here every time the doors are open when I joined the church. That's, this, that's, a, that's a part of joining the church. That's, that's what church membership is. That wasn't strange to them. To be a member meant saying, when this church meets... I will be there. That's what it means to be a member. You say, why? Because I'm agreeing to be a member of this church. It would be odd for, for ancient ears to, and minds to think in the way that many of us have been taught to think. That's what it means to be a church member. The analogy of the human body in the Scriptures, I think, is very helpful here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27... Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So the church is a mystical body. The individual members of the church are like body parts in that body. Simple picture, right? Okay, if you call your friend and you say, Hey, I'm going to come over to your house Friday afternoon. Okay, I'll see you then. Now when you hang up the phone... Is there any confusion in your mind or in their mind about which body parts may or may not show up Friday afternoon? 
Are you thinking, you know, I mean, their thigh might come, maybe their knee. I wonder if their ears are going to be there. I don't know. Are their ears going to be there or not? Maybe. No, you just assume when they say, I'm coming, my, I'm, I'm bringing myself, my body is a part of that, I'm going to bring as many body parts as I still have attached when, I, when I'm there. That's, that's the picture that the Scripture gives. And, and so it is with the church, and it's stated assemblies. Now, all of that about that, that phrase, stated assembly. Now, this afternoon... As I read back through this, and, and looking at the, the way that this is worded, the Church of Christ, according to gospel institution, is a congregation of godly Christians who, being first baptized upon the profession of faith, as a stated assembly, do by mutual agreement. I wonder if what he's saying here in this paragraph is that all of these things that they agree to mutually and consent to mutually take place at a stated assembly. Does that make sense? Like they, they all said, let's all get together at a time and a place where we will unanimously and corporately give our mutual agreement and consent to give ourselves up to the Lord and to one another. In other words, he's describing what we would call a constituting service. I, I don't know that for a fact, but the more I read it, I think maybe that's what he's saying. Either way, a church has its stated assemblies. And Keach was one of the ones who believed in the concept of a formal constitution and covenanted church body. So it wouldn't be strange for him to say that. But we have that, stated assemblies. Number four, we have mutual agreement and consent, or by mutual agreement and consent, these people give themselves up to the Lord. Mutual agreement means agreement that's held in common by everybody. Mutual consent Consent is just another word for permission. And being given up to the Lord means to His headship, His commandments, all, all that He is, all that He's prescribed, all that He commands for His people. So a church is a group of people who have all publicly, mutually, unanimously agreed to give themselves to the Lord. That's number four. But then number five, by that same mutual agreement and consent, they give themselves up to one another according to the will of God. And it shouldn't be strange to us that having given ourselves up to the Lord, we would also give ourselves up to the Lord's people. Paul says in Romans 12, 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. One of another. So, so church membership is not simply that I as an individual come and attach myself to or uh, join myself to this idea of a gathering or a body, but that the individuals are joined to the other individuals. I am a member of each one of you. Each one of you are a member of me and of one another. Individuals coming together in a body, individually members one of another. And that's, we, we agree and consent to give ourselves to one another. And this is where, where I often say when we bring in new members that the, the, the newest members have the privilege of sitting, sitting back and watching the, the congregation, the rest of the group for, for three months or so before they decide, do I really want to give myself to these people? Whereas those who came before have already agreed to give themselves covenantally to everybody that comes after them. So you get a little bit of a, 
a benefit there if you if you if you come later. But still, yeah, that's the point. We we are coming into a union with one another. So a church is a group of people who have all publicly, mutually, and unanimously agreed to give themselves to the headship of Christ over His church, the commandments of Christ for His church, and the people of Christ in His church, specifically, that is, to those people. And again, think about a human body. This is the the analogy that the Bible gives us. My hands have a special association with my feet that they don't have with your feet. Praise the Lord, right? We're, we're happy about that. If you, if you have a spouse and she gets to the point where she's not able to clip her toenails, sometimes your hands get to share that special relationship with somebody else's feet. But outside of that, you typically don't want to be uh, having that, that relationship with other people's feet. What's, what's the point? Inside a body, there is a relationship with body parts that, that they don't share to other body parts. That's a church. In a church, the members of a church have a special agreed-upon mutual bond with the other members of that church, a duty to them, an obligation to them, that they do not have with the members of other churches. Number six, these people ordinarily meet together in one place for the public service and worship of God. A church is not a church if they don't meet. That, that should be fairly simple and obvious. The biblical word ecclesia means assembly. So a church that does not meet together is not a church by definition. And a person who does not meet with the church cannot be a church member. That's why we say, if someone wants to join our church, here's the, the prescription, come to our meetings, the, the time we've decided on this for three months, come to all the meetings. Now, there are several things that that does for a person. It helps them to get to know us, helps us to get to know them. But it also says, can you even make it to the meetings of this church? Because if you can't do that, well, then you can't be a church member. That's just basic. Because that's what a church is, an assembly. Now, when do the Christians come together? We could say, when did the first Christians come together? 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week. And that's when we come together. Why do they meet together? For the public service and worship of God. As it says in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So they gathered on the first day of the week. For what purpose? To break bread, the Lord's Supper, and Paul also preached to them. So that's number six. They meet together for worship and Service to God. Number seven, among these people, the word of God is duly administered. The word duly means following proper procedure or arrangement. So for a church to be a church, there must be the administration of the word following the proper procedure or arrangement. Now, he doesn't name it here. We'll get to this in the future, but this implies, and in their minds it would have implied, proper church leadership, men who are qualified and capable to administer the Word, but it also implies the proper handling of the Word of God, that it's ministered in truth. A lot of groups get together, and they may have many things that look like a church, but then the truth that comes out is error. It's false teaching, false doctrine. 
That's not a church. It doesn't matter what else they add to that false teaching. Because they miss this one ministry of truth, they're not a church. It's not built on the truth. So there's the administration of the Word. And then number eight, where the sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institution. That is, baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be administered following proper procedure or arrangement. And again, that that implies in their mind, their thinking, a leadership structure that is capable of carrying those things out. Now, I will add this qualification um, because this is something that I I had thought wrongly on. Um, This does not mean that a church ceases to be a church if it finds itself without a pastor or pastors. When we say a true church has the ministry of the word and sacrament, and that implies proper leadership, what we're not saying is, well, if the proper leadership, uh, me and me and dad die on the way home tonight in a car wreck, well, that doesn't mean you all say, well, <laughs> I guess we don't have a church anymore. That's not what we're saying. Can I back that up with scripture? Yes, I can, as a matter of fact. Uh, in Acts 14, 23... We read this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice in this passage that there were already churches in these cities. They appointed elders. Elders in what? In the churches. There were churches there, and yet they were without elders. They had not yet appointed elders. They come back around and they appoint elders in every church. Well, how do we know where the elders need to be appointed? Go to the church. Wherever there's a church, that's where you need to have elders. It wasn't as though they were not a church until they had elders. It was simply that they were incomplete, an incomplete church without elders. And if we wanted to trace this out further, uh, following uh, the, the time of the apostles, you might would ask, how can there be elders if there is no church? Is it not the church who appoints its elders? It is. That there must be a people to receive their leadership. Well, well, how can that be if there's no church in the area? And that's where you begin to trace back into the need for churches to plant churches so that you have a body of people, you have leadership that can appoint and vet and see the gift of men, and then those men can then be sent to plant churches. But that that was their thinking. But we see there in the book of Acts, there was a church or churches that did not yet have elders. Titus 1.5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Without elders, we could say things were out of order. Appointing elders then would put things into order. Using the language that's used here, we would say a broken... If if you fall and break your arm, that doesn't mean you only have one arm now. You still have two arms. One of them is just broken. It needs to be set back into place. It needs to be fixed. So these these eight things, uh, concluding there with the, the administration of the sacraments, these eight things, Keech says, need to be in place in order for there to be a, a proper church state and that a proper church state needs to be in place for discipline to function as it should. Now, among the many definitions of a true church that were given during these days, remember these men, are, many of them are coming out of 
the background of the Church of Rome or the Church of England, and they are wondering, okay, we're, we're, we're leaving those churches. You've got the Puritans who want to purify the church. You've got the, the, the separatists like we come from who were like, no, we're not purifying that at all. We're doing something else. Um, so then they had to stop and ask, so then what is a true church? We know that that's a false church. What is a true church? And so many men were writing, here's what a true church is. And among those many definitions... James Renahan says that a church was always defined, quote, in terms of its members, their commitments, its government, and its function. In other words, when they would sit down and they would try to say, okay, what, what do we believe the Bible teaches about a true church? It was always written according to this form. Who makes up the church? What do they agree to do together? How are they governed? And then what do they go about doing as a church? In other words, matter and form. Who makes up the church? What does the church do? Uh, under the second point, I think we, have, we can do this. Under the second point, Keech expounds a little deeper on the matter of true regenerate church membership. Let's read number two. The beauty and glory of such a congregation consists in there being all converted persons or lively stones, 1 Peter 2, 5, being by the Holy Spirit and faith of the operation of God, united to Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone and only foundation of every Christian, as well as of every particular congregation and of the whole Catholic Church. So he says in short, and this is a good way to close, that these elements which make a true church that we just listed they are, for the most part, outward manifestations of this basic fundamental truth. All Christians have been united to Christ. That's what he's saying. We've been joined to Christ because of who He is and what He's done, and because of our union with Him, all of these other things will flow from that. In being saved... We are joined to Him. And in being joined to Him, we're joined to one another. And these other matters are simply the outworking of having Him as our joint head and cornerstone. And then He gives these references, and I'll read these scriptures. Concerning the union that we have with Christ, Paul writes in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death. He uses that phrase, baptized into Christ. Literally, immersed into Christ. All of us have been immersed into the same One, the Son of God. And if we all share that vital union, that, that, that immersion into the same Christ would we not then expect that we would all be drawn together to one another to worship that Christ and obey that Christ as He has prescribed? Especially when a part of that prescription is that we get together and do things. We're united to the same Christ. Concerning Christ as our foundation and the church as a house, Peter says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So Christ is the, the living stone that was rejected, and we are like living stones, and we are built, being built into a house. We're being joined together. He's the cornerstone of this house. We're being joined together, all sharing the same cornerstone, all coming together in the same house. Would we not imagine that these types of things that we've seen would flow from that union? Ephesians 2 20 and 21, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. We are joined together to make this, this church, this temple of the Lord. You might read the Old Testament. You might wonder, how, why do I care when you're reading about the tabernacle? Why do I care how this curtain is attached to this pole? Why, does it, why do I care how many of these little loop, loop things are on this? Because those are parts of the temple. Those are things that God has prescribed, the ways that we are joined together. It's important. Concerning Christ as the head and we as His body, Paul says in Colossians 2.19, not, uh, the error would be not holding fast to the head. We want to hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Christ is the head, we are the body. So if we share these things in common, Christ is our foundation and cornerstone, we are His body, His temple, He's our head, and all of this is made real to us by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, then would we not expect that there's going to be a special bond between us, that there's going to be a, a coming together for particular purposes, that there's going to be a mutual agreement and consent to do uh, things together and obligations and duties that we share to one another. All of that flows from this inward reality. And when we do gather together with one another, having been first baptized upon the profession of our faith as a stated assembly, giving ourselves up to the Lord and to one another. And we meet together and we worship God in word and sacrament. We do all these outward things. Surely we have to understand that there's, there is a deeper beauty to what the church is than just the outward forms. There's a reason why we do those things. It's because we're joined to a mutual head. We share a Savior. Is there not an eternal and spiritual reality that makes all of this then shine forth the very glory of God? Because the world would look at what we do and they would say it's strange. And we'd say, well, we do these things because of this deeper reality. God is with us and God has commanded these things. We have a union with the Son of God by the Spirit of God. And that is what gives life to all of these other things and makes them effectual for our salvation. You might say that's strong language. Church membership and, and activity effectual unto salvation. Not justification, not regeneration, but sanctification, preservation. Absolutely. These are the things God has ordained to make sure you don't leave, that you don't walk away, to keep you and to make you holy. These staples of a true church would mean nothing if not for the underlying assumption that those who come together do so from a mutual love for Jesus Christ. The church is a spiritual house where spiritual sacrifices are offered. And apart from this, the spiritual identity or these spiritual realities, what we're doing here is no different than a baby shower. 
except the, the men come. We just get together because we like to get together, we have fun, eat together. If that's all we're, if that's all we have, there, there's no spiritual reality here. There's no effectual uh, working of God. But what we're seeing here, and this is what Keech is saying, the, the the glory in all of these outward things, underlying it and giving life to all of them, is our union with the living Head, the Lord Jesus. We have to make sure that that's there. We'll stop there and we'll pick up with number three, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. Let's pray together.